Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. The new year is almost here and we've gathered a panel of leading commentators to look out to 2020 and to give us their predictions for the year ahead. We'll be talking Brexit, the general election, the future of the Irish economy and much, much more. Let me introduce you to the panel right now. I've got Stephen Brewer, who's a veteran of the telecoms industry, both here and abroad. And he's currently Managing Director of Magnet Networks. Uh, Lucinda Creighton, who's a former Fine Gael TD, serving as Europe Minister between 2011 and 2013. She's currently Chief Executive of Vulcan Consulting, a company she founded after quitting politics. And Michael O'Keefe, Chief Executive in Ireland for the Communications and Advisory Group Teneo. Nick is also my co-host on our occasional business and sport episodes on Inside Business. Stop laughing, Michael. Uh, Lucinda, we might start with you and we might begin with Brexit. Um, it could be said that Brexit has been good for Boris Johnson, Fintan O'Toole and Vulcan Consulting. <laughs> well, to be included in such an illustrious list is a great honour. Thank you, Kieran. Um it's been a well, certainly been a roller coaster. Um, I think uh, I think Boris Johnson has um, certainly played a very clever game. Um, mm. You know, arguably perhaps not the most uh, uh, principled um, or selfless um, political uh, game over the last twelve months, but um, you know has has you know obviously positioned himself as as the saviour of the arch Brexiteers and uh, took over the, the leadership of the Conservative Party and led them to an, an historic victory last week. Um, so Brexit, you know, his slogan, obviously, get Brexit done. Uh, it's going to happen now, Will be delivered... January 31. ...in one respect um, on the 30th of January. Um, the UK will certainly leave the EU institutions, but Brexit is certainly not done in the sense that there is going to be, um, you know, a very complex... Uh, disentanglement process. Um, I do believe that Boris Johnson will aim to have a free trade agreement negotiated by the end of the year. I think he will do everything possible to try to avoid an extension simply because, you know, as leader of the Conservative Party, as Prime Minister, he wants to focus on other things. He wants to, he wants, he, I mean, he, he, he doesn't like Brexit any more than anybody else, I think, um, and would like to, to have it behind him. Um, but of course, that will require very, very close alignment. It'll be resisted by um, the people who supported him to become leader of the party. Um, but he is in a very, very powerful position now. Um, you know, power has has basically, you know, s- seeped away from Westminster and has been restored to Downing Street with um, with a majority of almost 80 MPs. So um, he, he's in a very strong position to do what he wants, frankly, in relation to Brexit over the coming months. And uh, the question is, what 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 is his will uh, where does he want to end up by the 31st of December 2020? And uh, I think a lot will become, you know, clearer over the, the next couple of months on that front. So tell us a little bit about Vulcan. You're backwards and forwards to Brussels a lot, I know. Um, uh, how big is the company now? What kind of work are you doing on behalf of clients? And what are their concerns around Brexit? Um, yeah, so we we uh, we have two offices, one in Dublin, our headquarters, and then uh, we also have an office in, in Brussels, which is expanding. Um, we work across a range of sectors. So we uh, we work a lot in financial services, uh, pharma, uh, life sciences, uh, technology, some energy. So it's a, it's a broad range. Um, uh, and we work on, you know, political risk assessment. Um, we work on policy advisory work. Um, you know, all sorts of stakeholder uh, analysis um, and we work on regulation. So a lot of EU regulation. Um, Brexit is a part of it and I think increasingly for us we're going to be very focused on trade over the next uh, couple of years, both the EU-UK trade negotiations but also the dynamics which we expect to really heat up in relation to US-EU trade over the coming years. Um, it is going to be the big focus for the Trump administration if he's re-elected. And even as we've seen in recent, um, in the in the past six or eight weeks, um, it's really it's really live issue for Irish companies, mm. um, as we saw with um, the 25% tariff imposed on, on certain goods. Irish, um, yeah, exactly, dairy mm. goods. Um, and we can expect more of that. Um, you know, it's it, I think the EU's going to be very firmly in Donald Trump's side when it comes to his tariff wars over the coming uh, the coming couple of years. So um, I think that's going to be very interesting and very important from the point of view of not just Irish business, but mm. international business as well. 
Mick, whiskey might get caught up in that trade war as well. And I know Teeling yeah. uh, are one of your clients. And they, they've been going from strength to strength in the past uh, few years, but they could be caught in the crosshairs of this. Yeah, and there's, there's a good few, and I suppose, similar to what um, Lucinda was saying. Um, we have a Dublin, London, Brussels offices access, and I think um, Brexit was both good and bad for business in that it was definitely we got an impact in terms of sentiment and clients kind of in an uncertain space which is never good for business and people not spending on on certain things particularly on the consumer side and retail facing side I think on the other side um, you know there's a whole industry that's been built up around information Brexit's one of those things you you know you're not really going to be able to influence but people are thirsty for information on it because it impacts so many people Um, and yes I I think you're correct I, I, I think you know what we have now is a situation where um, there's some element of certainty after a couple of years of, of, of uncertainty. Um, and what I think, you know, it, it very interesting from our perspective, what impact it has here and, and what's going to happen in this country in general election 2020 and also what happens in the north now, the DUP losing their influence with the kind of holding the holding sway in terms of the, the parliamentary um, arithmetic um, and the maybe been forced into... Um, reopening the assembly in the north as well so I think it's <laughs> we've some element of, of certainty at, at last yeah. um, and I think you know while unpalatable un- as Johnson is um, it's it's an awkward one when you're looking at things from the outside in at least I think people now know well, Brexit will get un- done You say Johnson's unpalatable but surely Jeremy Corbyn would have been even more unpalatable I mean who wanted? I mean, the British people clearly didn't want him as their prime minister. No, they didn't, and I and I think the the the, the traditional working class Labour red constituencies fled in their in their droves. I think they got it completely wrong from an election uh, strategy perspective. I would say business in the UK would have been petrified of a Corbyn uh, government. There was talk at one stage of if Labour had have made some gains and Lib Dems had had a much better, I'm talking a few months ago now before the election campaign started, you may have ended up with a Labour-led government without Corbyn. I think that was probably highly unlikely, um, you know, based on, you know, Lib Dems being able to tell Labour who's going to lead the, lead the country. Um, I think it's the best of a bad situation at the moment that you have a strong Tory leader with a big majority who can now negotiate and get Brexit done. So, yeah. yeah. Stephen, can a trade deal be agreed by the end of next year? Not in my opinion. This, it's taken 40 years to embed the Britain into the EU in terms of all the various um, changes going on. The market as a whole in the world is changing as well. As Lucinda said about America coming into the um, picture in a much stronger way, in America's interests only, not some polite, wonderful relationship with the UK. Um, also, I think the... Um, I recently read Finton's book about the the relationship of um, Ireland and the UK and how it's gone on, and it's it's worth reading again because all the same issues are rolling round again, um, and that, that really worries me. Then I was fortunate to listen to the lady from Scotland who came and gave a session down at uh, the Royal College of Surgeons a few weeks ago, and I found her very articulate and will be very strong in fighting her corner. So this idea of a, Sturgeon. Yeah, uh, as, of, of a united Ireland, of uh, a united Gaelic, if, if you could call it that, coming into it, is there. However, Mr Johnson has got a massive majority. Mm. And I am a little bit fed up in governments across the world um, that have this sort of comfortable relationship that there's no majority and therefore that slows down the whole thing of getting acts passed and changing anything and it's all vested interest and softness so I, I, I'm, I, I like that for a change and as we know Cameron threw that away Yeah, now you're a man who sells broadband for a living um, what did you think of Jeremy Corbyn's proposal to offer free broadband to everybody in the UK? Pie in the sky It's a, the, 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 it, it's a cost to roll these things out. If you don't pay for it yourself, you're going to pay for it in your taxes. It's, it's as simple as that. It's like the, the, the water here. I mean, it's crumbling. Within 10 to 20 years, it's going to be an absolute mess and then it'll be another great big cost for the Irish public to bear rather than something which has to be um, paid for every year. Yeah. And, and I applaud our, the executives of Irish Water um, who are trying to do their best with limited budgets to try and keep it running. Yes, it's always easy to poke at something which goes wrong, but I, I, I think they're doing, where they are, they're doing the best they can. Yeah. But they've got to do more. And therefore, the, you need to adjust these the corporate um, inflows of, of money and start actually thinking, where do we need it? I mean, Children's Hospital, I think it was 23 years ago that was approved. 
and it's still being built and it's in the wrong place and they won't be able to staff it. So, you know, things like that need yeah, putting, think, putting think, on a list. I think Leo Varadkar might that, disagree that with you on, on, on some of those points. But anyway, well, we, I'm, sure he might, I'm sure he will, but yeah. then that's opinion. All right. Let's talk about another national utility, like rural broadband. The government recently uh, signed an agreement um, for, for that to be rolled out over the next uh, number of years. The cost has skyrocketed. What do you think of that plan? Well, it's skyrocketing. Um, because it's, again, been put on the long finger before a decision was made. Technology is always going to put the cost of these things up. Mm. Um, however, they have a good plan, and I'm, I've looked at it in some depth because I was working um, with the department um, on the early days um, and therefore can, was quite close to it. Um, without a smartphone, without broadband, you're a second-class citizen in any country in the world. And I think that the experience that um, the National Broadband Plan company will have will be something they can export and sell to all the other countries who are further behind than Ireland is in the future. And I think that's a, a great opportunity for Ireland's technology and smart business people. Really? We're, yep. we're going to export our expertise. They've been doing in, it for a long time. In the rollout of national, uh, of rural broadband. Yeah, that, that, because that's going to happen all over the world. And in fact, even uh, 20 when years ago... the process ago, that has been run has been held up to ridicule. Oh, that's, that's a, 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 the process. That's the long finger stuff. The expertise to roll it out in a proper way, using wireless, using 5G, using all the technology which can be there, will be, as far as I'm concerned, something which um, other countries in the world can learn from, from Ireland. I don't know if you know David McCourt, but do you think his consortium, uh, National Broadband uh, Consortium, that they have the expertise to actually pull this off? Yes, they have the expertise to to pull it off because they can, in fact, um, draw upon fantastic technology resource here in Ireland and anywhere in the world. And they've assembled a, a great team, one to build the commercial model and one to build a deployment model. And those two things come together under David and he's got two separate boards and he's got two strong CEOs to drive that forward. I think it would be a very good result. Right. As long as it's not... What's the word? Um frustrated by local interests. Yeah, well, uh, it may well be. Uh, we wait and see. By the way, did, did Magnus at any point along the way uh, look at, uh, no, look at my, the rural my, broadband my scheme and was insert yourself in any way, my, shape or form? No, my it was independent of Magnus. Right, OK. Um, Lucinda, what do you think about the rural broadband scheme? I mean, the, the bill is certainly saucy and a, a lot higher than uh, was originally forecast. Yeah, I mean, well, that, that's the classic Irish tale, isn't it? And I think, you know, I, I actually agree with Stephen in the sense that I think the, 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 the problem is how we approach procurement, um, a lack of decisiveness um, at central government level, um, and we will see now about potential local frustrations because, of course, that is the other thing that, that tends to hold these major infrastructure projects up. But, I mean, I think it's a really ambitious programme. And actually, Ireland is is not doing bad in terms of our penetration, broadband penetration. You know, we often, I suppose, we're, we're rightly self-critical and we often look at ourselves and, and sort of think we're the worst in Europe. We're actually not. We're ahead of the UK. We're ahead of Germany. We're ahead of a lot of very advanced um, industrial nations. <clears throat> um, but we're, you know, if this plan is implemented uh, on time, I'm very reluctant to say on budget because does anything ever happen on budget in this country? But, um, but I think that there's a there's there there is a, a real opportunity for us, and you know the connectivity. I think the model could actually be a template for other countries, not just in terms of the technology and its rollout and its deployment, etc., but also in terms of how we connect rural communities and how we make it possible for, for companies to operate outside of, you know, core urban hubs. And if we can do that well, you know, I think um, not only will it be an excellent outcome for the Irish economy and for Irish people, um, but also could be um, something that's looked at by other by mm. other developed and developing nations. It could be really interesting. So I'm optimistic about it. Um, and are they taking the right strategy by focusing on a certain number of hubs initially, get it up and running there and then sort of spread it out? I think there's no choice. Um, you know, you, you have to, I mean, you have to have a, a rollout plan um, and it has to be done in phases. Uh, and the logical thing to do is to try to focus it on on certain hubs and then build out a, a sort of a hub and spoke model. Um, to me, it seems very logical. Yeah, uh, Stephen, is there a danger that it might be overtaken by 5G or indeed any some other technologies that might come no, along? No, 5G has its limitations. Um, but fibre 
is there for a long, long time. It's what you put on the end of it and how you deploy it at the end of it, which is this hub and hub model. Um, 5G is there, and it, 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 it's an ex as expensive and as difficult to roll out a 5G network nationally as it is the broadband, but the broadband will last forever. It's Remember the things we've had, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G. Mobile technology keeps changing. Fibre is in the ground like copper was 100 years ago. Fibre is going to be there probably in load, loads of years to come. you just got to get it there. Right. What's the difference between 5G and 4G? What will 5G give us that 4G Speed, doesn't? Speed, capacity. And it can be utilised by um, other uh, um, people like Land Rover, Jaguar Land Rover, are now making 5G their, um, if you like, communication connectivity system for all their cars. So you're, you're going to be monitoring car traffic, just as free now taxis are doing it. That's owned by Dame LeBenz. Not many people know that, I don't think. But 27 countries, Dame LeBenz are collecting the, the routing of all the taxi journeys. So when there's driverless cars, they've got the data. They know where the routes are. And, I, I, you know, it's interesting to think, where, where will Dublin bus go? How will they be actually utilising it? They've got a Wi-Fi system which, which needs upgrading so that they can do the same thing in city centres. Or this in Dublin City. Yeah, um, is Magna going to get into five G? No, no. We're 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 very firmly in direct internet access broadband um, to the two businesses rather than the homes, and um, we're unique in one respect is that we don't sell one brand. We're a wholesaler for Air, Virgin Media, Enet. Um, and, and uh, all, all the others and Saro so that we can actually you come to us and we'll say oh that's the best service for you in your area and do it and if the fixed line of that doesn't work then we can put wireless on the end of it there's very few places now um, that you can't get broadband if you want to pay for it um, and it'll never be free like water is right okay I wish Dame Bands could get me a taxi at three in the morning on Harcourt Street <laughs> <laughs> well that's a different story technology, yeah, Michael. technology only goes so far <laughs> Um, let's move to sport. Uh, the Euro 2020 tournament uh, yep. uh, being held across Europe in multiple cities uh, next year, including <coughs> Dublin. Yeah. Now, fingers crossed, the Irish soccer team will make it, but we're up against it, let's face it. We have two playoff games next year, both away from home. And, of course, we have all the FAI governance uh, yep. stuff going on in the background. Yeah. But Euro 2020 in Dublin, what will it mean for the city? Oh, it's massive, and, and I think... Um, I don't think people realise how big this is going to be. I think everything's been clouded in the controversy that's embroiled the FAI over the last 12 months. Mm. I, this is going to be fantastic. It would be incredible if Ireland qualified because you'd get the fanfare and the fan zones and the city will stop. The city council are behind it. It'll mean a huge amount to the Irish economy. Um, inbound fa soccer fans coming in their tens of thousands, as we know when we've gone to places like Poland and Germany and other places and spent a lot of money. Um, I think it would be brilliant and I think thankfully the way the results have gone there was a fear that we might have had a Russia-England game in Dublin which would have been good fun um, but um, I, I think it's going to be incredible and I think hopefully at that stage the um, well-documented ills and travails of the FAI will have been ironed out and it'll be a massive shot in the arm for, for Irish soccer and for Irish sport um, and uh, you know it's, it's you know we look at 2020 and those even years as I call them um, the Olympics as well next year and the Euros with with games in Dublin whether we qualify or not but obviously be so much better if we did qualify um, it's going to be worth tens of millions to the economy it's going to be great mm. What are our chances of winning those away playoffs with Slovakia first? Yeah, very very hard I think um, I think the ideal scenario for us would be that if the North beat um, uh, Bosnia. Bosnia and we went to Belfast and not have to travel to Got to beat Slovakia first No true and I'm, we're you know hoping that we beat Slovakia people remember we beat them but we didn't actually we drew with them out there the first game in the fog you couldn't see the goal and um, the, this time I think what we're hoping for is to get any kind of like get a result penalties extra time whatever um, I think the logistics of playing in um, Bratislava on a Thursday I think and then having to go to Sarajevo on a Tuesday for all sorts of reasons is you know a really painful thing to be able to do and I, I just think that might be too much for our squad mm. even though they're coming in a bit of a high we've got a lot of young players coming through I think it would be far better if we came back and then I'd go to Belfast on a Tuesday with you know a couple of hours drive up the road albeit yeah. um, <laughs> it might be a bit like going to Galatasaray on a, on a Tuesday night but it'd be well worth it it'd be brilliant and, and, and it'd be great for the, for the island of Ireland I think and it'd be great to have a big derby game like that to see who goes to the Euros yeah, big derby game. Yeah, okay. Uh, not in the traditional sense, perhaps. But um, Mick, let's talk about a little bit about the FAI because sure. Three Ireland have announced that they're pulling out as the main sponsor. Uh, it was a big ticket sponsorship for the FAI, and we yeah. know that they're 
they're, they're really in the horrors in terms of their finances at the moment. Shane Ross saying today that they looked for a, an 18 million euro bailout um, from the government and liabilities in the last set of accounts of uh, 55 million euro. So where are they going to go for a new sponsor? Who's who's going to be prepared to take up sponsorship of the FEI and how much will they pay for it? Yeah, like I even saw today, I think the number was 60 million. It's an, in, there's actually an updated debt number. Um, I think it's all very, very sad to be honest with you and it's very tragic and I think it's terrible for people involved in football at all levels it's terrible for our sport this comes on the back of the Olympic scandal from a couple of years ago as well and um, it's not good um, I, I, the question you asked a direct question on three I think it was a devastating blow at that time um, you know when these sponsorship contracts the big sponsorship contracts come to the end of their their period there's an exclusive contract negotiation period and it was up to the very last minute um, and now the FAI are left with a situation where um, currently haven't appointed the independent directors no chief executive um, so it's rudderless as we know at, at the moment and have been left with six months to find another sponsor um, I think that when you couple that with the um, withheld, withholding of the state funding for the FAI like it really is as low as it can go um, and People have been waiting for this to bottom out. I I think we're nearly there. I I think the new year probably can't come quick enough. Um, my understanding from talking to people in 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 these circles around this issue is that as soon as the independent chair is appointed, although what a poison chalice that looks like at the moment, um, and the three independent directors get appointed. Um, you can start the process of hiring a CEO. You start the process of hiring a chief executive. Well, then the funding will start coming back. Um, and then you would like to think that um, at ground zero that you could have a position where they can rebuild from the ground up and have pro- hopefully a best-in-class sports organisation in, in, in this country. It badly needs it. It's the most played sport in the country. Um, it's in every community in, in, the, in the country as much as the GA is in, in, in many respects. Um, and I think the government have been right to withhold the funding um, because it is state money. There is an argument that they may have overstepped the mark a little bit with some of the posturing. Um, and I don't like the term bailout. I think when you consider where money has been spent in this country, I think if and when a new chief executive is appointed, I think 20 million to get the FAI back on its feet will be money very well spent. Mm. Lucinda, would you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think lessons obviously have been learned and probably are continuing to be learned um, within the FAI in terms of, you know, conduct of senior leadership, etc. Um, but I absolutely agree with Mick in the sense that um, I'm not, I have to say, I'm not a particularly um, a football fan, but um, like it is, it is the most ubiquitous, ubiquitous sport in the country. Um, it is essential that the FAI is, you know, back up and running, hopefully quickly, um, and that, you know, it can get back to doing what it's supposed to do, which is to promote the sport and to have a team that inspires young people and, you know, the the business of sport as opposed to, you know, whatever was going on behind the scenes that has come to light in recent in recent months. Um, and I, I do think that the government should play a part in in supporting that process on very strict terms and conditions, you know, in terms of governance, etc. Other organisations have been through, you know, we've seen it in the charity sector in particular in recent years, you know, um, you know, real spotlight being shone. I'm on the board of a of a national governing body for, for equestrian sport. And, you know, as a director, you have to take your responsibilities extremely seriously um, because everybody is scrutinising these organisations and rightly so. So um, particularly when public monies are involved, um, but also when sponsorship and 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 other monies and uh, obviously the, the contributions that people make at local level as well. So I think it's right um, that, the you know, getting the FAI back up and running is a priority now. And I have no doubt that sponsorship will follow. Uh, it is the most popular sport in the country. So sponsorship will follow once potential sponsors see that the organisation is functioning, that it is transparent um, and that proper corporate governance is in place, which obviously has not been the case, um, but hopefully will be very quickly. So, you mm. know. And what about this idea of splitting the FEI into two, a grassroots and an international football team, and that the government directly funds the grassroots element I of don't, it? I, personally, I don't think you can separate the two. I think that grassroots, I mean, every every kid playing football, you know, whether, you know... In, in, at school or in a local local um, football pitch or whatever, part of a local group, um, that you know the aspiration for all of them, the thing that motivates them is to be part of something bigger. 
Um, and I don't think that you can separate the sort of high performance stuff from the grassroots. I think that they are interdependent and they have to complement each other. Um, and I don't believe that the government should sort of wash its hands of the higher level stuff. Even, you know, even even though it has become very commercial and it has become uh, not so much in Ireland, but across the pond, uh, become all about, you know, big money and, and, and so on. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it is one sport and it um, it should be unified and there should be a unity of pers- purpose. And the FAI should be able to articulate that, inspire it, deliver it. Uh, it, it hasn't done that effectively for quite some time, um, but that should be the mission. And I think that the government should support that at all levels. OK, Stephen, let's talk about the economy. How's it looking to you? How's Magnet's business performing? Um, we've had a good year. We continue to grow. Um, it's very competitive because you've got a number of very big players who can play the price game despite regulation. Um, however, it, it is growing because technology now is being accepted you don't have to have an old copper wire and phones attached to it and it ringing it. You can use the cloud. You can um, use your phone or your computer screen to make a call and it just goes through your broadband. And that saves millions and millions um, of, of, of money we're doing. So technology is going there. It's adopting it and changing things. And um, I, 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 I go back to the governance point you made, Lucinda, about the football. Governance in actual companies should ask more questions about how their businesses operate. And I think that will really help um, the SME. When you think there's a few so-called corporates in the UK, in in Ireland, but on the whole, it is an SME market. Therefore, costs of your connectivity, um, costs of the labour laws and people who, you know, into court, you know, it's, it's all this cost of a business. Can't be competitive when they do that. But the Brexit stranglehold hopefully is... We're going to know what's going on there, um, and I, I hope that that will work. I think there's also a trend in business to roll up companies who are, let's say, doing 10 or 20 or 30 million to join another one so that you have these benchmarks. If you're a 50 million company or a 100 million company, you can get economies of scale and be competitive in a European basis, not just within Ireland grabbing bits and pieces of the, a bit of market share. Um, and that also improves their total efficiency of how they sell. I mean, I've done work with... Um, and continue to do so with Enterprise Island, where they have four or five companies all trying to sell to the same person in Paris or in Germany or whatever, and they all send a salesman over rather than getting together and sending one guy over who represents them all. And I think Enterprise Island have encouraged a lot of that, and I think that's a good thing, but it's got to keep improving so you have more muscle when you sit in front of a potential customer. Now, it strikes me that 2020 might be the year when sustainability is, is going to be a big item on every corporate agenda. Uh, consumers uh, in particular now are demanding to know what companies are doing in terms of reducing their carbon footprint, reducing packaging uh, and applying a green agenda right across their business. Does that apply to Magnet? It applies to Magnet, but I'm, I'm not... I'm, I'm, we. I'm not sure that everybody's demanding they want to know this, that it, this is a bit of lip service, possibly. You know, it's OK, and we've got a CSR programme and we're doing this in green and whatever. My son has just done a project on green, electri- uh, was, uh, green electricity and you can get a certificate saying the electricity is good and it's, it's all wonderful stuff. But he's more interested in other things like maybe football or rugby or tennis. And, but I think the young people will be the driving force so I think this is something which is necessarily going to be on their shoulders um, to bring forward because they do care. They say, why are we eating so much meat, you know, and stuff like that. It is in the children, and I think that they can help it, whereas businesses, yes, they report to their board and they say nice things, but there's nobody standing outside little except the farmers um, saying, you know, is it all okay? Um, but all these things are an improvement, and they will keep edging away at us as we go. But when you get a big country like America or China who pay very little um, notice of these things, you know, yeah. and carbon, then well, it, it won't happen. Atmosphere at the end of the day. Um, Mick, are a lot of your clients uh, exercised about sustainability and what are they doing about it? All of them are at the moment, to be honest. Um, every single client that we speak to has some form of sustainability agenda at the moment. Um, I would slightly disagree in that I, I, I think... There will be a, um, and it's coming from consumers up, um, an expectation that organisations from energy companies to car companies, uh, 
meat suppliers, etc., walk the walk when it comes to sustainability. A lot of them are now putting in place five and ten year strategies. You may it may look like box ticking. Um, and there's a little bit of that um, and some of it is narrative development stuff and, and so on but um, I think there is an expectation from consumers that a company should behave in a in a, in a a way and proper purpose and values and sustainability is right at the heart of this and you only have to look at how quickly the plastics debate escalated from being a non-issue three years ago to being front and centre on the agenda and you know, there's this race to be virtuous as well. We see with some companies like McDonald's who um, scrapped their plastic straws and then realised months later and put their hands up in fairness to them that the paper straws didn't weren't recyclable either. So, I think I think people have to take their time over this. I think there is an onus on on the the big polluters and uh, to 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 change behaviour um, and its behaviour within how they deal with their own suppliers and stakeholders and internally, but also from supply to to delivery um and yes it's it's absolutely very high on the agenda of just about every client that we have the government Lucinda kind of on the horns of a dilemma really aren't they they talk the talk about uh, you know following a green agenda and uh, reducing Ireland's carbon emissions and so forth and yet we still have electricity fueled by by coal burning power stations we're going to need gas um to fuel this economy for years and years and years to come and yet we're putting in a ban on uh, oil exploration but not gas uh, and you know there are lots of other ways in which um, the government is, is essentially contradicting itself in, in terms of its uh, green agenda. Yeah I mean I suppose we still have one of the worst records um, of all of the EU member states um, even though we're at the same time, time trying to be at the vanguard of pushing the green agenda so we do contradict ourselves quite a lot Um you know there are there there are major policy shifts I suppose that that require um, action, um, you know everything from our transport models to um, our sources of energy connectivity with um, bigger energy supplies across Europe, um, nuclear energy potentially, which is something that we you know we nuclear sh- energy in Ireland. We shy away from it. I don't. I'm not suggesting we build nuclear plants, but I mean we are already consuming nuclear nuclear energy to some extent. And via France, via an interconnector, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's and it's likely, I think, to become a more and more important source because it is very very clean and very green. Um, I'm so, not sure Eamon Ryan would agree with you that at the Green Party, well, but prob- I, probably not. But I mean, it's it's pretty much a scientific fa- fact. So you know, there's 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 um, there's definitely going to be, I think, a requirement if we're to meet certain carbon emission targets to rely more heavily on nuclear energy and other forms of, of clean clean energy. We've lots of natural advantages in Ireland um, around uh, wind and solar, etc., mm. which needs to be developed further. Um, but, you know, what we require, I suppose, is a, is a very uh, ambitious uh, policy agenda. And I think, you know, perhaps the political impetus wasn't there really until recently. And actually, I suppose the local and European elections last May were a wake-up call, um, not just in Ireland, but pretty much in every Western European country. And it's interesting, the dividing line in Europe, if you like, and we even saw it reflected in the European Council conclusions last week uh, around the European Green Deal, which is very ambitious. But there wasn't unanimity because Poland um, refused to to give its imprimatur. Uh, and that actually bears out, if you look at geographically, how the Green Agenda has garner political support across Europe there's a very big divide between the north and south and east and west um, and obviously in Ireland we had um, a significant uh, result for the Green Party uh, here particularly in uh, urban uh, east coast um, constituencies and I think we're probably going to see that reflected in the European in the general election when it comes in the new year uh, and that has suddenly put a rocket under the, the two main political parties here that you know that's that's yeah, pretty sure, obvious that's always the way I suppose yeah. but there are two two big issues I mean there, there are many issues but two that sort of jump to mind one is around beef farming um, and um, farming is in the spotlight for, um, for for being a big polluter. I think it's the I think it's the the cows belching is uh, is, is a real problem. And um, we export so much of our uh, beef uh, abroad. It's a real it's a real issue going forward. And Stephen mentioned as well that um, young people are looking at a non meat. Uh, a lot of young people are looking at a non meat agenda into the future. So you'd wonder about the sustainability of that. But the other one is around uh, air travel. We rely on 90% of the visitors to this Ireland coming by air. And yesterday, Niall Gibbons, the head of Tourism Ireland, um, sort of articulated some concerns um, that Ireland might be drawn into this flight shaming debate. Uh, and for long haul travel, people coming from the US, etc., uh, it might become an issue. 
and the Germans see it as a green, clean kind of economy. Uh, but if we get drawn into this flight shaming debate, they might decide to get into their cars to get on a train and, and go somewhere else rather than uh, getting on a polluting plane uh, and coming coming to Ireland. So it's a real problem for us, isn't it? Mm. That's a real risk um, for sure. Um, and, you know, obviously this is also an internal debate within companies because so many um, multinationals are located here and there's so much travel, um, um, both Irish-based staff travelling to the US and and uh, other destinations as well. Um, but certainly from a tourism point of view, I think I think we, we are at risk. Um, you know, there, there are certainly, I think, worthy debates around... Um, around uh, Carbon taxes on air travel, which would would which would certainly impact Ireland both from a tourism point of view and a, a connectivity business point of view, um, and they are I presume debate uh, discussions that the government would be very keen to, to avoid um, and probably stay out of to some extent. Um, I do think that there has to be some recognition of our island status. We're not, you know, we can't be treated in the same way that you have, you have, you know, special treatment and various um, EU policy programs which take into account, you know, peripheral regions, etc. Um, you know, when you're an island, you do, you are at a disadvantage. Um, everybody can't travel by boat, and we don't have rail connectivity um, to continental Europe or even to the UK. So if that they're all, I think, um, questions that we have to. We have to discuss openly and frankly, but um, but but I think that the government certainly will resist any effort to disadvantage Ireland uh, from the point of view of our tourism industry or other um, relevant connectivity. It's a, it's a massive challenge for the airline industry as, as well. It certainly is. Michael O'Leary was in mm. um, Brussels last week actually lobbying on this uh, very point and he had some colourful language um, for the Dutch and their sort of input into this whole debate. Yeah, and like I know they're looking at airlines have strategies now and looking at strategies around more fuel efficient aircraft and making other, you know, things outside of flying airplanes that make their footprint neutral, et cetera, et cetera. Um, until such a time, like air, air travel is essential like at, in, in the world we live in at the moment. Um, but I think a lot of corporates are facing this conundrum as well around trying to cut down air travel. It What's is the Teneo policy, uh, Mick? Because you're, you're, you're actually headquartered in New York. We are headquartered in New York and we have a London, Brussels. We, we travel as little as we possibly can, is the, is the, is the truth. Um, with with um, Skype and Teams and all this sort of stuff, we can, we can communicate quite easily without having to, to travel if we don't have to. Um, but we do um, from time to time. I'll be in London five or six times a year perhaps, but if I don't have to go, I don't go. Um, and uh, we fly economy as well, Karen. Does Declan Kelly fly economy I'm when sure he comes he over from New York? <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure on as many does. trips? I'm sure he goes with Greta Thunberg on their boat. Um, but um, yeah, no, look, but it's, it's a confused, it's a confused picture because, you know, there's there's all this information out there and I think you look, the beef lobby has been um, kind of really damaged by the perception that, you know, eating meat is bad and there is this now ingrained in people and even if you don't know it, people seem to be cutting back on their red meat intake and young people that you talk to, it's this kind of perception red meat is bad and, you know, it's not all bad and balanced diet and all that kind of stuff and there's proof that it's it's actually good for you in some, in, in some instances and then you have things like um, electric cars, big lobby now around electric cars, more environmentally friendly. And then you talk to some people and say, well, the batteries can't be recycled. And actually, in fact, they're really environmentally unfriendly. And so there's, there's a, it's it's not all that clear. And I think we're in a very confused place at, at the moment. Um, but with respect to the, the airlines, I think it, look, this is this is on the agenda. And I think, you know, whether we like it or not, it's something that um, companies are asking questions about. Um, and it, if it comes down to a fact where people, investors are asking these kind of questions, well, then behaviour will have to change as well. Yeah, Stephen, um, let's talk about, let's leave green behind um, and talk a little bit about the economy. I just wonder with a general election uh, hoving into view, whether Fine Gael uh, might get any bounce out of the economy uh, having thrived over the past few years, I'm sure they will. Um, I'm being English. I'm pretty a, apolitical in terms of that. I see what people do. I worry about things I can change, and not talk about things I'm never going to change. Um, politics are where they are, and if you remember what I said earlier about having a, um, a government in the UK which has got a majority, it can do things. This soft government where there's the what, supply agreement and all the rest of it, uh, so I, I think that really 
it is a, a difficulty for a country. I think whether you like it or not, in the States, um, Trump has got, and I'm not supporting Trump, I'm saying one man, he's getting on with it, he's changing the economic picture there. Um, you, you go to some certain other uh, countries, and I'm not saying dictatorships, um, because I don't think you, you want that, but I, I, I do think you need a, a group of policies which can be implemented, because the, the thing I, I, I suffer from, or lots of my life, loads of great ideas, but getting them executed. And governments then, that they're in a, a frozen position when they're all doing it, and it's, we'll do it, no, we'll do it purple, no, we'll do it slightly red, no, well, I want a bit of yellow, and in the end, it ends up a pretty neutral mess, which doesn't actually, A, it takes twice as long as it should have done, and it doesn't really do the job, whatever the policy might be going forward. Um, How many countries know, have you worked on? Um, f- well, if you count the Caribbean, which was 10, um, uh, and uh, France, um, the UK. I went to Scotland once, which is another country. Um, uh, uh, Ireland, um, America, um, California with Apple. Um, it's fascinating um, how, how that they are all different and how they um, so strive the best to system be. in your opinion? I think when it doesn't... That they're all good if they have a majority government the, for the time because if they don't do very well, that government gets voted out and they move on. When it's a soft um, environment, I don't think that's very good. Right. Lucinda, you were involved in politics for many years. Um, how do you see this general election playing out? Any chance of either Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil coming up in a majority or even coming close to a situation where they could find you know, form a solid coalition government? Well, well no, I, I, I don't see that happening. I think we're going to end up with another minority government at the moment. Um, it's both what the polling is sort of bearing mm. out. It's also my gut instinct. Um, and I, you know, I would agree, it's even interesting. The last government had the biggest majority in the history of the state. This and is the one you're a member of? Yes. And 2011 the, and to 16, Fine Gael exactly. and Exactly. And the timing of that was was probably it probably couldn't have been better in the sense that it enabled the government to get on with implementing the IMF program, which was unpalatable, which was you know a most unpleasant sort of um, agenda for any government. But it you know it did allow the country to move on and to get to a point now where we have the fastest growing economy in Europe for the last few years and almost full employment. Um, and I do think that there is a connection w- between that. I'm not saying it's perfect. I don't know. Well, it's far from perfect. I'm not, the housing crisis. And, no, no. I, I, record I, levels no, I, of sorry, I, I'm, homelessness. I, I'm talking about the, 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 the nature of that government. I'm mm. not saying that's per, that's perfect, having such a huge majority. And it comes with a lot of down, downsides, like, for example, perhaps not the same degree of accountability that you would have in a, in a narrower majority scenario. But it does allow you to get on with things. And I think the big problem at the moment is that we have a government here which nobody expected to last for more than about 18 months, which has now limped on for nearly four years, um, which has had obviously a change of Taoiseach in between and a change of personnel in, in Cabinet, etc. Um, but it is very difficult to get things done. Um, and I think as a result, you have an unambitious agenda. Um, so um, unfortunately, I think the likelihood is that mm. after the next election, it'll be much the same. Um, so, With Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil leading it? Uh, well, I think looking at it at the moment, um, if you observe what happened in local authorities all over the country after the local elections, I think it's quite likely that you will have a Fianna Fáil-led government with a with a, a, a range of um, of left-leaning parties supporting them. But I still don't believe that they'll have a majority. So I think that there will be pressure then on potentially on Fine Gael in opposition to um, to lend some support. So it's going to be very messy, um, but it's very messy at the moment as it stands. Um, and if it goes Fianna Fáil's way, is there pressure on Leo to step aside? Oh God, oh, thankfully I'm no longer involved in, in those discussions. I don't think so. I mean, fr- like frankly, I think if... if, uh, if um, if Fine Gael is in opposition after the next election, I'd be I'd be surprised if there were a change of leadership, um, because he's so relatively new in the job and so on. But uh, that's a lot of ifs and it's a lot of speculation. And uh, as I said, I'm no longer party to those discussions. Sure. So what's your what's your gut feeling on when the election might be called? I think it'll be February. February. Nice. Yeah, I don't. I, I just think I I can't see it lasting a whole lot longer because. Uh, at this stage, I think um, the opposition parties are mad for an election, and with Brexit out of the way, um, once it's ratified in Westminster, I think um, they really have um, it's 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 a wide open run for them. So, Mick, does it matter if it's Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael to the <coughs> corporate community? Um, 
No, I, I, I think Finnig, I think this has been a reasonably successful government considering the constraints that they had. Um, I would take your point around um, the more stable and certain it is, the better. And you know, I, I would agree with Lucinda in terms of um, the most likely scenario at this juncture is probably a Fianna Fáil combination fifty five-ish seats with maybe 20 coming from the Greens and, and, and Labour with a few independents and it's not that never a really stable scenario but I think the pressure would be on Fine Gael to not rock the boat for a, for, for a couple of years I think that's probably the most likely scenario um, I, I think Fine Gael have been in government for what nine years now at this stage um, is there a little bit of fatigue I don't know um, you know voters don't do gratitude so I don't think they're going to get patted on the back at, at the doors either but they'll have had nine years in power as well nine years is a long time especially in Irish politics it's an, it's a, it's a, it's an awful people long time people grow tired of it, it, governments it, 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 is, it, it is an awful long time and I think you know you're looking at you said the Achilles heels of housing um, is very much front and centre of, of people's minds health another one that always comes up um, and then you take the macro piece around Climate, and we've just discussed that, um, you know, that's going to be, everyone's trying to greenwash and, and, and put forward a, a green agenda. So I think it's going to be fascinating. I, I, I think it's going to be really, really tight. I think you're probably going to end up both pulling in around the same percentage-wise. It's just how, this, how the, the, the seats are going to fall in some of those tight um, constituencies. Yeah, I think, I think the point about housing, I think housing is such a unique issue because it's, it, it, it really crosses the socioeconomic divide and it sort of touches all generations. So you have a homelessness crisis, which is obviously impacting the most vulnerable in society. And it's a new type of homelessness because it's, you know, it's obviously affecting families and children a lot more than it did in the past. People but with jobs. Absolutely. And then and then you look at, you know, people in the private rental sector, student accommodation um, and then, you know, first time buyers and people who who perhaps bought apartments and ended up in negative equity during the financial crisis who are who are still trying to, you know, um, to trade up or have families now. And so like literally, you know, there's it's hard to identify a cohort in our society who aren't impacted by the housing issue. And I think that that is definitely, um, as Micah said, I think that is the Achilles heel for this government. Now, a lot of people will be wondering, Lucinda, whether you might be tempted to make a return to the political stage. I doubt anybody is wondering. Absolutely not. No, no. You're happy. You're happy where you are. Just come back to Brexit for a second. The, the, the Brexit that we have on the table, is that is that the best outcome for Ireland? Oh, no, I think it's a terrible outcome. I mean... Well, I mean, assuming yeah. that they're not going to go back on the Brexit yeah. decision, that there's not going to be a second referendum. Yeah. Is this the best we can do? Is this the best outcome we could have got? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, if you had a, if you had different dynamics in Westminster for the last two years, we would have a much, much softer Brexit and a much better <coughs> deal. But unfortunately, this is the deal. Um, you know, I know everybody said Theresa May's deal couldn't be reopened and then as it happened, it was reopened. But this one is definitely not going to be reopened with the majority, uh, with the did majority Leo, that... Did Leo get the best deal for Ireland that he could have, in your opinion? I, I think I think Leo did very, very well to get a deal at all. I, 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 I you know, I think that um, certainly in the last few months, um, given the situation in Westminster, given the dynamics in the Conservative Party, um, I, think we, I think, you know, it was very conceivable that we would have seen no deal and that the UK might have might have crashed out. Um, so I, I think he did very well to deliver a deal. I think that his his meeting with Boris Johnson and showing that bit of flexibility, which, of course, everybody said the Irish gov- government couldn't show because all of the negotiations were being conducted bilaterally between the EU and the UK and Ireland had nothing to do with it. And then all of a sudden, the Taoiseach, you know, went to the UK and had yeah, a very Boris productive Johnson. meeting with mm-hmm. Boris Johnson. And lo and behold, the Irish government could actually influence it. Um, but I think it was I think it was a crucial intervention. And I, in fairness, I would say absolutely full credit to the Taoiseach for doing that. Uh, and it did change the dynamics entirely. Obviously, he, he and Boris Johnson appeared to have some sort some sort of chemistry and um you know a, a good dynamic and 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 it worked and it enabled us to get to the point where we are now which is that we have a deal it's better than crashing out for sure but it is by no means a good deal from an Irish point of view and um, because it does um it does mean a, a hard brexit now a lot will depend on the negotiations as i said at the at the beginning you know if we're lucky and if Boris Johnson really does want to get this done and if he suddenly decides that he, you know, the only way to get a, a trade deal done um, is to align very, very closely with the EU, 
we could end up um, with the optimal scenario at the end of this, but you know that, that's a lot of you know a lot of ifs along the no, way. No, that's uh, that's it's a fascinating point though because you have a, a strong leader, one a better way of saying it, and a large majority, and perhaps you may end up with a softer Brexit then because the concessions can be made with the comfort of of that and that's going to be very interesting to see how, how that plays out things that might have that he, he might have beat his chest around for the last 12 months he may actually now we, go and do because he, because the, pra- the practicalities yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of doing a deal will mean he has to make concessions but he can only make them now because and we saw he's how, in a position how it of worked out for the DUP you yeah. know so what Boris says not necessarily what Boris does. What he does, yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, we'll see how Brexit <laughs> plays out in the fullness of, of time. I'm going to quickly go around the table. Just ask you for a key prediction uh, for next year. Stephen, start with you. Well, I, I, I think that newspapers and the publishers of newspapers will still actually be very, very important. However that news is delivered... God bless you. I, I think <laughs> I, I, it is not meant because I'm here. I actually <laughs> still like picking up a newspaper. I still trust the reporting. And um, I, I think my prediction that will continue, however they might be delivered to me. Yeah. I like reading a newspaper rather than my phone all the time. Okay. We need I to think, clone you, Stephen. No, no, sorry. No, <laughs> I, I, I would have one thing. I'd also like to see, this is my wish rather than a mm. prediction, um, the, the government's parties, whichever they might be, trying to stand and control the costs of public service. I haven't, since I came back to Ireland about three or so years ago, um, I've, I've very, very rarely seen politicians stand up and saying we're going to make the spending more efficient. All they're asking for is more money to spend the way they've always been doing it. And I think the public actually deserve a better control of their finances. It's not a criticism of Pascal, it's just a general thing about let's spend more. What's going to happen this year? HSE is going to be a billion or two billion over its budget, as it has been every year for as long as I can remember. Where's the efficiencies being made? Okay, well, I think there's a lot of people would chime with that point. Michael? Um, I think on a sporting front, I think I hate saying this, um, Liverpool will win the league, um, making me sick. Um, France will win the Six Nations. The FAI will hopefully rebound. Um, I think we'll see a slight slowdown in the economy, unfortunately, next year. Um, and potentially a mishmash of that Fianna Fáil, Labour, Green coalition of sorts. There's many predictions. Is that five? Is it? Okay, I only asked for one, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> way over quota. You might, you might even have nicked one from Lucinda. I don't know. Sorry. We'll find out now. Sorry. Lucinda, your prediction. Oh, I'd like to pr- predict the next president of the United States of America, but I don't actually want to make that prediction. Um, I, I'm looking at Tokyo, I think, at the Olympics. And uh, I think uh, I think actually overall, notwithstanding what we've been talking about, I think Irish sport is in good nick. Um, I mentioned earlier, I'm on the board of Horse Sport Ireland. For the first time ever, we have three equestrian teams qualified. Show jumping, for th- dressage. And eventing. Okay. Um, and I'm predicting medals. Hopefully in all disciplines. Brave. Um, but definitely medals. What about the management of expectations here? <laughs> you have to reach for the stars. <laughs> we'll end on that positive note. Uh, that's it for this year from Inside Business. My thanks to Stephen Brewer, Lucinda Creighton and Michael O'Keefe. Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. My thanks also to Jennifer Ryan and Declan Conlon for their work as producers during the year. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn each day, even over the Christmas New Year break. How about that? Now, I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next year, take care. Happy New Year. 